Hey, before we get into the text, if you have a Bible, you can start looking for Matthew 17. It's the first book in the New Testament. We're going to be highlighting a passage in Matthew 17. Maybe you haven't heard taught before, but I want to help you know who to root for today if you're an NFL fan. <laughs> uh, I assume all of you now root for Cincinnati because of Evan and the fact that he was in Salt Company here and, you know, we know him, root for him, and he's a great professional football kicker and we want him to go to the Super Bowl. So we're going to root for the Bengals, but maybe you don't know that we're also rooting for the 49ers because uh, Brock Purdy was a student leader at Iowa State University and he's really a godly man and he was Mr. the last person drafted. And so today he has an opportunity to win. And if he wins today, he'll go to the Super Bowl. And so if Evan goes and Brock goes, we'll have salt on salt. And uh, that'll be great. So now I've, I've set you up to, to cheer today for Salt Company students. Um, yeah, so uh, people ask me all the time, Troy, why, why college students? And you're 60 years old, and don't you think you've kind of aged out of reaching the next generation? And certainly I have, but I haven't aged out of reaching the next generation, to reach the next generation, to reach the next generation. And I'm telling you right now, at almost 60, if God would give me 80 years, I would die a happy 80-year-old. But if God would give me 160 years, another lifetime, I'm telling you at this moment, without having to think about it, I would double down again. And say, God, if you would give me another life, if you would give me 10 lives, I would give all of that life to reaching the next generation. Our guy who's going to go out to Eugene, Oregon to plant the church out there has been leading Salt Company in Ames for the last five years. And people ask him, well, why do you think it's important to go after college students for the gospel? And these are the three things that he said, because they are the most reachable people group in all of our culture. Secondly, he said they're the most shapeable people group in all of our culture. And he said, most definitely, they are the most sendable people group in all of our culture. See, if you want to be a part of a movement of God, you got to get people who are willing to go. And the great thing about your city is you have 50,000 who are living here right now. More than that, if you count Santa Fe, I hear that's a big booming place too. So let's just go with 70,000 people who came here to go. And so if by God's grace, you're able to see them come to know and love and follow Jesus and then to be discipled. They're going to go somewhere. Why not send them as missionaries for gospel good? And I love it that the reason that I'm here today is because there was a young man at Iowa State University who felt the call of God on his life, who later planted a church at University of Northern Iowa, and in 2019 said, I would love to see God bring Salt Company and the gospel and a church that loves college students to Gainesville. Aren't you guys grateful for that? Yeah. And now Florida will be the first state outside of Iowa with three salt churches with plans for five. And you guys have the third most college students or maybe the fourth most college students in the nation with the fastest growing college community in our country right now. And so we pray that God will reach all of Florida for the gospel. But we want to do it not because it's a good idea. We want to do it because we find roots of doing that in the Word of God. It's biblical. So if you found Matthew chapter 17, I would invite you to read along with me, starting with verse 24. It says, When the disciples came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter, and they said to him, Does your teacher pay the temple tax? 
I don't think Peter knew the answer, but he just went with it and said, yes. And then you see as it goes, it says when he went into the house, Jesus was there and he spoke to him first. He said, hey, what do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect the tariffs and taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Once again, he's taking a stab at the answer because he most of the time got it wrong, but he's still answering anyway. And he said, from strangers? Jesus said, yeah. Well, then the sons are free. But so that we won't offend those who are collecting the temple tax, why don't you go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take that coin and give it to them to pay the taxes for me and for you. Powerful, powerful passage. Are you now blown away? Should we close in prayer? You know what to do. Why is this in your Bible? Is it just to tell us that the only time Peter ever caught fish is when the Lord commanded him to go fishing, even though it was his career, he apparently wasn't very good at it? Is it to show us that Jesus has supernatural power, that he can know all the fish in the sea, and that he can make it such that when Peter casts his hook in the sea, that the one fish that has a coin in his mouth will bite that hook and then Peter can really is it about the supernatural power of Jesus once again over fish of the sea and over creation it is all about his knowledge I tell you I'm a fisherman and ever since I read this story I've caught a lot of fish I hope all of you guys are fishermen living in Florida if you're not wow why not this is a great place to be a fisherman but I've looked in every fish I've ever caught's mouth and never found money have you But if you understand all of your Bible, you know in Exodus chapter 30, there was a law, a Jewish law that stated this. Every male over the age of 20, when he showed up at the temple, had to pay a half shekel of the census offering when they visited the temple of God. And all of Jesus' disciples were in Capernaum. And he had more than just Peter. And yet Peter had to catch enough fish with enough money to pay for two, Peter and Jesus. So what does that passage teach us? That most likely, most probably, all of the disciples, except for Peter, were under 20 years old. I'm just going to let that sit. All the disciples. And you can study this out, and what you're going to discover, it's not like the movies that you saw. These are not bearded old guys who are peers of Jesus. In fact, they were young men, most likely teenagers, who Jesus would call to change the world. And this is just one text. What about John? John chapter 13, at the end of Jesus' ministry, you know, when Jesus was washing disciples' feet, and maybe you know the, the, the verse where Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, verse 34, love one another just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then it goes on and says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But how did Jesus begin this story or this commandment? Here's what he said to his disciples. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you where I'm going, you can't come. 
And often Jesus would use this Greek phrase that is translated in this verse, little children, to refer to his disciples, which most often and even sometimes it's interpreted infants. Now, how odd would that be if Jesus, with the gathering of his peers, would refer to them as infants? But... This is a term that wasn't offensive to them, and it was common to Jesus when he referred to his disciples. Why? Because they were young men. Well, what about the historical realities that we get? In the Mishnah, which is, is the authoritative rabbinical commentary on Jewish oral tradition, also in the Jewish encyclopedia about the times, we learned that ancient Jewish education system began educating boys at five years old. And then at 10, they studied Mishnah, which was the oral tradition of the Jews. And they were all required to study that. At 13, they were required to memorize the Torah, which was the first five books of the Old Testament, which was responsibility of their fathers. At 15, if they were chosen because of their influence or their aptitude, by a teacher, they could progress in their formal studies like we do college today under a rabbi or they would begin to apprentice for a trade. At 18 years old, according to their tradition, they were married. How does that feel, boys? <laughs> and girls didn't even get to be that old. They were 13 to 16, likely. And at 20... They could pursue their own business out from under their parents or a trade. You know how old you had to be to become a rabbi? 30. People often wonder, why, why did Jesus wait till he was 30 to begin his earthly ministry? Wasn't he God in the beginning? Well, why 30 when he began his earthly ministry to become a teacher and a rabbi? Because that was the tradition of the day. It was common in that day. What Jesus did was very common. It was very normal. Just like today, when you graduate high school, you go on to college. That is the university system. In that day, when you turned 15, you were going to a rabbi, and the only rabbis could become rabbis if they were able to become rabbis when they were 30 years old. And so Jesus, as he began his earthly ministry, he picked disciples, most likely teenagers, to train and to put them in ministry. Well, if you're not convinced yet, let me throw this idea behind you. Have you ever considered the behavior of the disciples? Did they act more like adult men or teenage boys? What was their most common argument that they had among themselves? Oh, it was, who's the greatest? Are you kidding me? They're with the goat himself. I mean, they're with Jesus who's performing miracles. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's taking fish and milk. He's feeding thousands with a sack lunch. And they commonly are arguing about who is the greatest. And you know that's the behavior of high schoolers, right? I mean, you get around high school boys and they think they are something about to be something more. right? I have never known a high school athlete who didn't think he was going to play in the NFL. Right? And they might not even be a starter on their high school team, but they think they're going to play at the University of Florida, and they think they're going to go from the University of Florida to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or Miami Dolphins or to the Jaguars <laughs> or maybe even the Dallas Cowboys. You know how I know that dream is real? 
That was my dream, and look at me. This is no Dallas Cowboy. And not only that, if it wasn't bad enough for them to argue among themselves which one was the greatest when they were with the king of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth, if it wasn't already bad enough, James and John even got their mom in on the deal. And you know how teenage mothers can be. Listen to this, Matthew 20. <laughs> then the mother of Zebedee's sons, they approached Jesus with her sons. And I imagine that she had them hand in hand. And then she knelt down and she asked Jesus for something. And Jesus said, what do you want? And she said, promise, promise me that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right and one on your left, in your kingdom. Now imagine she has bearded James and bearded John's men in their mid-30s who are well beyond being under the coattail of their mother. Wouldn't that be odd? But now she's got James and John, her teenage boys, that she's aspiring for them what they're aspiring for themselves, and now she's adding her mother's voice to the rabbi saying, let my sons be with you in your kingdom. It's interesting also that we know a surprising number of the disciples' parents. Nine of them, we know who their dad was. And there's several references to their mothers as well, which was only common when referencing children, right? By the time you get to be 30 and in your own career and having children of your own, you have your own identity. You're no longer a part of a household. You've established a household for yourself. And in that day when you're married, you began a new household. And when you began your business, a new household, which was at 20, not at 30. So if these men were older, there would be no reference to their fathers in the scriptures. And yet almost all of them, we have reference to so-and-so, son of so-and-so, and even their moms. We know in Matthew 8 and Mark 1 and Luke 4, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. So we know for sure that he was married, but only Peter has any reference to being married or to any family outside of his marriage. And so since tradition would say that these men would be married, most likely at 18 years old, it is safe to assume that all of them were under 18 when Jesus called them. Maybe the exception would be Matthew, but think about it like this. It says, Matthew, son of Alphaeus. We know he was a tax collector, also named Levi. But possibly, Matthew's father was the one who was a tax collector, and at 15, he began to apprentice with his father because they were Roman-assigned Jews who were traitors, and so their sons would have been rejected in any other profession anyway. And maybe it wasn't Matthew's house, but it was his household owned by his dad who was able to amass the party that Jesus had when he was accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners. So what's my point? It's simply this. Jesus chose 12 men, most likely teenagers. And he trained them for three years. And then he commissioned them with the gospel to change the world. Is that not? And what am I to get? For sure. Is that nuts? I love Luke 6, 
12 and 13, it says, During those days, Jesus went out to a mountain to pray, and he spent all night in prayer. And when he woke up the next morning at daylight, he summoned all the disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them who he would also name apostles. We've already talked about having disciples. That was a really common thing. And having a rabbi at 30, that was a really common thing. And so it was culturally relevant. But here's what you didn't call your disciples. You never called them apostles. Only Jesus did that. And when did he do it? At the end of the time when they were fully proven men, ready to go ready to go to battle. He said, now that you've been to my disciples for three years, fully trained, now you are my apostles sent to the ends of the earth. No, day one. He called them to be his disciples. And what he referred to them was apostles. What did they hear? The word apostle means sent. Are you guys familiar with the 1002 prayer? I know you are. We're planting 1002 Church. It's after that theme verse in Luke 10 too. It's also in in Matthew chapter 9, a different context. Also in in John chapter 4, a different context. But in all those contexts, Jesus said, do you see the fields are white unto harvest? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into the harvest. And the word is ekbalo, that he would ekbalo people into the harvest. And you know, when we think about sending, we think about something nice. That word is not nice. Here's the, here's the way that that word should be translated. <laughs> Get out of here. One of my friends who's a pastor in the network, his name is Hadi Lewis. He's a great pastor, a friend of mine. He said, uh, the, the word ekbalo reminds me of eagles and how they teach eaglets to fly. Are you familiar with this? Eagles build their nests high usually above cliffs or a river or they're always high, right? And mom and dad eagle, they feed the eaglet until it's old enough to fly and they determine when it's old enough to fly because at the time that they determine that it's old enough to fly, the mom or dad will push the eaglet to the edge of the nest and then they will ekbalo him or her, right? And at that point, what are the eagle's options? Fly or die. How many of you guys ever picked up a dead eagle under a nest? I haven't. That'd be cool, but I haven't. It wouldn't be cool, really, but it would be rare. And Jesus, when he raised these young men and women, his disciples, he had followed them to the ends of the earth. And by God's grace and the supernatural anointing of the Holy Spirit, those young men, all who died as martyrs except for John, and they tried to kill him, they just couldn't do it. Change the world. What about the Apostle Paul? We read about him in Acts chapter 7. That's our introduction to him. It says in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, the first martyr, was being stoned to death, it says, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man. Do you see that in your text? Named Saul. The word that's there there is usually translated youth. A youthful man. 
which means the Apostle Paul could have been as young as 13, that's the earliest that they use that term, and as old as 40, but most commonly in Scripture, when it uses that word, it's referring to the younger side of that, not the older side of that. And I've heard that people say, well, Paul was part of the Sanhedrin, and I don't believe that he was because the Bible doesn't say that he was. In fact, when you get to the end of Paul's life in Acts chapter 26, it says that he received authority to go and chase down believers but he wasn't the one who had the authority to, to stone Stephen. In fact, he was the coat boy. He was the one who wasn't in the action. They put the coats at him and said, if anybody steals my coat, I'm coming after you, man. Because I got some murdering to do here. But Paul was so inspired by the murder of Stephen and so enthusiastic for the future of Judaism that said he was raising up above all of his peers. And so as a young man, he wanted to ravage the church of God. And yet supernaturally, God struck him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? What in the world are you doing? I want you to give your life for something else. And we know what his pattern was, don't we? Who did Paul pick to be on missionary journeys with him? Acts 16 young Timothy. Galatians 2, we hear about young Titus, men who history would say are most likely teenage men who traveled with the apostle Paul as he was going from place to place, planting church to church. And who did Paul write to? The pastorals. Of all the letters written to churches in the New Testament, he wrote two men, personal letters, pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus, first and second Timothy and Titus, what to? To teach them how to lead and guide in the local church and to inspire them to multiply church planting across the known earth to the ends of the earth. It's biblical. That's why we do it. But I think you also need to see it's historical. If you ask yourself the question, major movements of God throughout the history of the world, where was the fuel and energy for that to happen? What you'll see is almost 100% of the time is on the backs of young people and believing prayer. Moved by the Spirit of God to be world changers. Have you ever heard of this? The Reformation? I'm not a history buff, but even I knew that. You know the founders of the Reformation? Martin Luther... John Calvin, have you heard these names? Martin Luther, when he was 32 years old, pounded on the Catholic Church his 95 theses because God had been stirring him for a number of years in the study saying the scriptures need to be back in the hands of God's people and we're doing it all wrong. And so at 32 years old, having gotten to that place, having encountered Christ in a new way, decided to begin a movement that would change the landscape of Christianity in the world. At that same time, there was another man. Are you familiar with him? John Calvin. He was 25 when he and Martin Luther began a movement. And now you can't go to any place literally on earth and you won't find Lutheranism or Methodism. Those two men being the founders of that movement of God called the Reformation that spawned so many others to come, know, and follow Jesus Christ. In the 1600s, something new was established in our country that produced, I don't know, maybe you're familiar with these places, 
Have you heard of Yale? Harvard? Princeton? Rutgers? Brown? Dartmouth? What do we call these schools? Ivy League schools. You know what they called them when they began? Seminaries. They were founded to train pastors for the emerging colonies in this country to send pastors who are Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopal, to train them to lead the church of God that was spreading throughout the country in the 1600s. Oh, man, you think Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Rutgers, Brown are good places to go found Jesus now or to be trained in gospel ministry? God have mercy that the foundation on which it was laid is gone. Are you familiar with the Great Awakening, 1700s, when there was a revival that broke out in the world, led by a young man, George Whitfield? He was 21 years old. Jonathan Edwards began pastoring at 19, and those two men led the movement called the Great Awakening. What about the Great Revival of the 1800s? D.L. Moody? Moody Bible Institute, who has shaped culture for years and years and years, hundreds of years, and C.T. Studd. Now, if I could pick a pastor named Studd would be it. <laughs> C.T. Studd, you know what he had a passion for? He and D.L. Moody raging, raising up the youth of the nation to take, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Two churches that we planted this year, Michigan University, was founded... By John Monmouth, who was 29 years old, a recent graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, was the first president of Michigan University. And there's not a lot of gospel movement there, in case you're wondering. Syracuse, we also started there. Syracuse was founded in 1831 as a university to train Methodist missionaries to be sent to the ends of the earth. And now there are more Muslims that live in Syracuse, New York, than there are Christians. And of the 24,000 students there, if you gathered all the students who do anything Christian on campus in one gathering at one time, there'd be less than 300 students gathered. What about your university? Established in 1853. I read this. It says, the University of Florida was established in 1853 when the Kingsbury Academy of Ocala was acquired by the state-supported East Florida Seminary. Were you aware of that? This is crazy. This is in the history books. In 1860, the seminary moved to Gainesville and later was consolidated with Florida Agricultural College, a land-grade school in Lake City. Is this the place that emerging godly men and women come to be trained for gospel ministry? There are 50,000 students that are here looking forward to graduate to change the world by naming the name of Christ? I don't think so. And at every major university in the 1900s in North America, you can see collegiate Presbyterian, collegiate Methodist, collegiate Baptist, whatever, Memorial Lutheran, whatever, now just historic buildings that serve as museums adjacent to every campus in this country. Why do we do what we do? 
Because we believe it's what Jesus did. And why do we do what we do? Because we believe it's what historically has moved the needle for gospel witness that changes lives. In my lifetime, there's a man named Bill Bright who joined forces with Billy Graham, who began a little movement that reached almost every university in North America and literally went to the ends of the earth. You know what his name was? Bill Bright. Started a little movement called Camps Crusade for Christ. And you know why? Because people were no longer getting saved in the churches, and he knew he needed to get the gospel to the next generation. There was another man in 1933. He, he, he was actually 30 years old. Bill Bright was when he started. In 1933, there was a man 27 years old. His name was Dawson Trotman. Started a movement called the Navigators. And he said, the church is no longer discipling students anymore, so we need to disciple students on this campus. And he started a movement that literally went to almost every major university in North America. And still today, you can find Campus Crusade Safe for Christ and the Navigators. And then we imported a ministry in 1947 called InterVarsity Fellowship. And they were about sending students to the ends of the earth as missionaries to take the gospel to the place where the gospel is unknown and unheard. Bill Bright was evangelism. And Dawson Trotman was discipleship. And InterVarsity was missions. And those movements transformed the landscape of the church on college campuses. But do you know that crew and navs and InterVarsity are dying and declining faster than the churches now. And it is time for God to raise up a new movement of men and women who will take the gospel through the local church to the ends of the earth. You think enough evangelism is happening, enough discipleship is happening, <laughs> enough missions is happening? No! It's not. And the reason we do it is because not only it's been historically real, it's been the story of my life. And possibly, quite possibly, it's the story of yours. At 17 years old, even though I was raised in a Christian home, Jesus captured my heart. And I began the first Bible study I was ever part of and saw my peers come to know Jesus and be discipled. Got my first job in 1985 as the freshman director of Baptist Student Union. By God's grace, was able to start Salt Company in 1987. And by God's grace, in 1994, planted Cornerstone Church. And there was something that happened to me at 17 that changed the course of my life. And maybe for many of you, even if you've gone way beyond that, the memories that you have of the gospel goodness and the sweetness of Jesus are memories that you had when you were a teenager. And what I'm saying is that taste doesn't have to go away. It's supposed to get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter as time goes on. One of the best examples that I have is a young man who came to Iowa State University as a freshman, having just given his life to Jesus as a senior in high school, and his name was Paul Sabino. And he was so hungry for the gospel that it was easy for me to spend time with him and to pour into him, and I didn't know what to say to him, so we'd just drive around in our car because I was pretty young in my faith too. And so he thinks I was somehow anointed by God and said, can you see it? I was quite confused. But now he has been one who God has used in my life to inspire me to do it again and again and again. And in 2005, he became the third director of Salt Company because we had started a church and we needed a salt director, so we hired Jeff Dodge. And then, by God's grace, Jeff became a teaching pastor at Cornerstone Church, and then Paul became the 
director of Salt Company in Ames, and we started a church and salt company in Iowa City, and that church actually worked in it. We said, maybe God would do this in another place. So we asked Paul and Jenny to go to you and I and start at University of Northern Iowa, Candeo Church, and that church grew to over 1,000, as many as 1,500 in the student ministry. It was about 600, and it was in that place that Paul could have sat on his laurels and said, wow, I'm a great pastor now, but he didn't. He became the first person to say, I want to see God do it again. And he took his friends and he took his family and he came to a place and he said, I want to see the gospel extended to Florida and I want to start a new region. And so in 2019, that young man still is on fire for Jesus as he went to 17, came to this place to bring the gospel here. And aren't we glad that he did? And now this place is going to plant 1002 Church in Orlando. And 1002 Church is going to be the first great grand church of the network. So you want to get me fired up, talk to me about my kids. I got seven. You want to get me jacked, that's beyond fired up. Talk to me about my grandkids. But if God will give me life and breath to live to be a great grandchild, a great grandfather, and those kids know, love, and follow Jesus and want to be called of him to reach the next generation, I will be beyond jacked. And God is doing that here. Why do I share this with you? Not to boast in what God has done, but to boast in what God is doing. The disciples were like us. I love Acts 4.13. It says, when... When people observed the disciples and the boldness of Peter and John specifically, they realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. You know the Greek word for uneducated and untrained there? It's idios. And you know what English word we get from that? Idiots. <laughs> we have a church called the Commons. Because the word is idiots. And that's what people were saying. They saw Peter and John and they said, there's only one reason these guys could be this powerful. And it ain't on them. It's on Jesus. And what did Paul write to the Corinthians? Not many of you are wise. Because then you would think you had something. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble. But here's what you were. You were chosen by God. Set apart by God. In weakness. Why? So that Christ, not us, would be our boast. And guys, at this point in history, the church is in a losing battle. Only two continents on earth today where Christianity is decreasing. The United States of America, this continent, Northern America, and Europe. Do you want to live in that culture where the gospel's gone? Or do you want to be a part of a movement of God, a restored movement of God that extends the gospel in this place and literally to the ends of the earth because God is moving on this earth? Do you know that? And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of it. Our dream is to see a church that loves college students on every major university in North America, and our dream is to send college students to the ends of the earth that we would plant churches in every place that the gospel is not known to the ends of the earth so that we can hear the Lord say when our life is gone, well done, good and faithful servant. 
What is your life? It's a mist that appears for a little while. And your college days don't have to be your best days of faith. They can be your beginning days. May God use all of us to fuel a movement that he's calling all of us to. Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel. It is, it is good news that sinners can be saved, that weakness can be strengthened, that you could use us to do something that would last forever. And it's not because of us, it's because of you. And as we think about your early disciples, oh, we, we get it. We relate to them. <laughs> but your, your gospel reached them and it's reached us and we want to be used of you like they were used of you. That the gospel would not die on our backs. That we would see a generation of men and women who would say yes to Jesus and by faith whether they're engineers or architects or doctors or lawyers or, or teachers or mechanics or farmers or pastors or elders, that they would be first and foremost disciples who've been sent with the gospel to the ends of the earth, we pray. Amen.